You can take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, I would like to offer you a pew Bible, or you don't own a Bible at home, one of those Bibles that we have available uh, on the rack in front of you, or maybe it's on the seat below you, you'll find Exodus chapter 3 on page 46 of that copy of the Scripture, and uh, that will way you can follow along with us as we look at God's Word. Just a, a, a comment here on this series that we're in co- calling Encounters with God. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to just remind you of it, uh, that when I preach to you as, uh, as your pastor, it is important that I explain to you the Word of God. This is what the Bible teaches us about what it takes to grow as Christians. It says we receive and believe the Word of God. It's in the preaching of Christ that we become more like Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our lives. And typically the way that I do that is I take verse by verse, as I did in the series in Romans chapter 8, and just unfolded the the grammar and the meaning of that to you so that you could understand it and apply it to your life. Now, this series is a little different. It's not that I'm not unfolding Scripture, it's just that we're taking such large portions of Scripture and explaining the meaning of those. So, I, I'm not dealing with every single verse in the range of passages, but telling you from the Scripture the, the story for the fullest impact possible. It is still what they call expository preaching, but is it, it is expository preaching from the Old Testament and covering large portions of Scripture. And, and so, I want to explain that to you as you understand the different style of, of how I'm preaching to you on these Sunday mornings throughout the series, Encounters with God. Another goal I have for the series that I haven't talked about as much is that you would get an increasingly clear picture of the whole storyline of Scripture from the beginning as we're going to be wrapping it up in the New Testament to the end. We started with Adam and Eve and their initial encounter with God in which they chose to step outside the boundaries of God. They chose to believe the lie of the serpent that there was some good to be found outside of God, and we're seeing that that is the problem of all humans ever since that day. That also is the momentum that carries the storyline of Scripture from beginning to end. It's the problem of how human beings can dwell again in the presence of God like we were intended to. So that's another one of my goals for the series, that we would see this arc of Scripture and how it starts from the beginning and goes to the end. Now, I'm not going to preach on every page of the Scripture. This series will have an ending date to it. That's the one reason why it's not on this banner behind me, but on the banners that are in the hallway out there in the foyer right outside the auditorium, it says 2019 Sermon Series. Okay, that was a deliberate way to hold self-accountable to end this series at some point in time. Uh, We will probably wrap this series up in the beginning of the fall, Uh, but it is not an interminable uh, series, but it is a series that covers large ranges of Scripture. And today we are dealing with Exodus chapter 3. You'll find that on page 46, as I said, if you're using a pew Bible. The banner for this series you see near the middle there is a symbol of a burning bush, this desert shrub surrounded by dancing flames. And this symbol here is taken from this passage of Scripture in which Moses for the first time encounters, has a personal encounter with God. And the thing that amazed Moses about this encounter, of course, was not just that he saw a bush, because there are a lot of bushes in the desert. 
And the thing that made Moses curious and caused him to turn aside was not merely that the bush was on fire. That would have been alarming, but that was not the thing that actually intrigued Moses about this. The reason why Moses turned aside to look and watch was this startling observation that the bush was burning but not consumed, that the leaves of this bush stayed green instead of being reduced to charcoals and crumbling into ashes, as you would typically expect to happen to a bush in the middle of the dry desert. Yet they remained as green and as vibrant as ever, as if fire were its natural environment. This is what made Moses so curious. And so the burning bush is at the center of this this series, but it's also, uh, this uh, banner, but it's also at the center of this series, the whole sermon series. Because the symbol of a burning bush is a picture of the deepest question, the most significant problem that any human being could ask. And you might say, hey, if I were to choose a symbol for my biggest problem, I don't think I'd choose a burning bush. (laughs) Maybe I'd choose something like a bill, a a medical bill maybe, or, or a family portrait, or a wedding ring or a hospital bed. That might symbolize my deepest problem, my most difficult question, but not a burning bush. I hope to see, I hope to show you, though, as we walk through the story, why it is that this burning bush, this symbol here, this vision that, that Moses sees in the wilderness really does symbolize the problem that you and I have. And I'm going to unfold this story in four parts, four simple parts, easy to remember, and and they go like this. Problem, solution, problem, solution. Four parts, problem, solution, problem, solution. What's the problem? Now, the problem that we see occurs before chapter 3, and I want us to look at verse 23 of the previous chapter. So, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The people of Israel at this time have been enslaved in the land of Egypt for 400 years. You remember, these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We talked about Abraham and Jacob already in our series. Now, 400 years have transpired and they're now in the land of Egypt and they're in slavery. 400 years, that's a long time. Rewind 400 years, and the United States of America wouldn't be a nation still another 157 years. That's how, that's how long this period has transpired for the people. And at this time, about the only good thing going on for them is that they were multiplying. Their population was just exploding. And because of that, the king of Egypt grew very intimidated, and he was afraid that one day they would turn against them and overthrow the Egyptians. And so he had a plan. He said, I'm going to make them my slaves. But that didn't suppress their population growth. They continued to grow, and so Pharaoh had another plan. His next strategy was to use the, the Hebrew midwives and tell the midwives, whenever you see a Hebrew uh, baby being born, if you notice that it's a boy, you're to kill him, and if it's a girl, you can let her live. 
Of course, the midwives refused to follow such a cruel command, and so the population continued to grow, and Pharaoh grew even more intimidated, and so he came up with another strategy, and he spoke to all his people, the Egyptians, and he said this, if you see any Hebrew baby boy, you have my permission, in fact, you have my command to throw him into the river Nile. Meanwhile, the Israelites, they are under the sting of the Egyptian taskmaster's whip, they feel the load of the bricks. They're building these storage cities for the Egyptians, and their, their lives are miserable. But what made their lives even more miserable was not just the sting of the whip and was not just the load of the bricks. It was this. It's that these were the people to whom God had made a promise 400-plus years earlier. This was, this was the people to whom their ancestor was given this promise. I will be with you, God said to Abraham, and I will bless you. And I will make you a great nation, and through you all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed, and I will curse him who curses you and bless him who blesses you. So they're, they're existing now in this miserable slavery, and they've been like this for 400 years, and yet they're the very people that have been the recipients of this enormous promise. And so they're looking at themselves and they're thinking, we are not receiving the promise right now. Are they blessed? No, they were in a cursed condition. Were they a nation? No, they were slaves to a nation. Was the person who was cursing them being blessed? No, the person who was oppressing them was prospering, was the, was the great Pharaoh. These people had a great problem. Their problem was their slavery in Egypt, but their problem was made even worse by the fact that they had been given this promise that they would be blessed, and it seemed like they were just marooned, abandoned. It seemed like God wasn't going to keep His promise. So that's their problem. The first and most obvious problem in this story. So what is the solution? Well, look at verse chapter 2 and verse 23. Their cry, I just read the first part of the verse, it says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And now listen to what happens next. The moment that they feel like they've been ignored, forgotten, that God is blind to their needs, then God acts, and He sees, and He remembers, and He knows. Look at these verses. Look at these words in verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that. Just the moment you think you're marooned on the island of suffering, God is there, and He's watching, and He knows, and He sees, and He remembers. The God who remembered and saw and, and knew back then, He's the same God today. He knows you. He counts your tears. He hears your sobs. He knows your bills that you have to pay. He knows your children and your parents. He knows everything about you, and He actually cares. The God that looked with compassion and, and knowledge and understanding on the people of Israel is the same God who looks at you and knows everything about you and cares and is concerned. And we find this verse of great comfort. Does God know? We, we wonder. Is God forgotten? He knows about your sickness, your hurt, your suffering, your guilt, your anxiety. And the solution then is God's presence. So 
we've, we've talked about problem, right? The problem with the people was their captivity in Egypt. The solution, remember I said problem, solution. So the first problem was their captivity in Egypt. The first solution is the presence of God. And, and we see this beginning in chapter 3 because God says, okay, I'm going to be with you, and He introduces Himself to His people through Moses. And that's what this story in chapter 3 is all about. It's God in the midst of the people suffering introducing Himself to His people through this leader, Moses. And, and notice how He identifies Himself. And this is where things get really interesting and significant for us is that God identifies Himself by the relationship that He has with His people. That's why He keeps on repeating Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so many times, because He's linking who He is back with people that He made a promise to hundreds of years before. He's identifying Himself by a relationship, and second, He's identifying Himself by the way that you and I tend to introduce ourselves to other people. And what do we give people? When we meet someone, you say, hello, my name is so-and-so. It's the most common way to introduce yourself, and this is the way God is introducing Himself too. He, he identifies Himself by relationship, and He identifies Himself by His name. So, we see in the first part, He says, this is in verse, uh, look at verse uh, 7, uh, sorry, rather 6 of chapter I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, identifying himself by relationship. And then he gives his name, and we see this in verses 13 and following. But we're going to start out by looking at how God identifies himself by his name, first of all, and then we'll look at how he identifies himself by relationship. See, names for us are significant because they identify who we are as individuals. But names in the Hebrew culture and in many ancient cultures were even more significant because they said something about the character of the person who bore that name. Remember, we talked about Jacob a couple weeks ago. Jacob meant trickster, heel snatcher. He was the supplanter. His name carried great significance because it described his character. And so, when God introduces his name to his people, it's going to have immense significance because it's not just a grouping of syllables that we identify with God, but it actually says something about his very nature. It says something about who he is. And so, when Moses replies to God in verse 13 of chapter 3 and says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is His name? What shall I say to them? Here is God's reply. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, it's really important to get this because if we don't get what's going on here with God's name, we're going to miss a lot of the rest of this, okay? So, I'm going to ask you just to focus really carefully. When God replies to Moses and says, my name is I am, and then he, in verse 15, he says, say to the people, the Lord, if, you'll, if you have your Bible open and you're looking at it, it's most likely that your version of the Scripture has that word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D, LORD, all caps. That is indicating 
that the Hebrew word behind that English word is these four Hebrew letters that are related to the verb to be, most likely pronounced Yahweh, which simply means the one who is. Yahweh, the one who is, in our English Bibles, rendered Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps. So, if I insert that then into the English text, I think it'll be clear how this is related to God's initial answer when He says, I am who I am. In verse 15, God said to say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the one who is. This is what you're to say, Moses. Who has sent you to bring us out of our captivity? Who is the solution to our problem? How will God's presence be introduced? What is His name? It is this, Yahweh, the one who is. He is who He is. This is the one who is going to bring you out of your captivity. This is the one who is going to solve your greatest problems. This is your God. This is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Yahweh, the one who is. Now, why is this important? It's important as we see it contrasted the way we think about ourselves. So, when you, you think about your own name and you think about the things that identify you, our names always restrict who we are. Like, they limit who we are to a certain ancestry, to a certain place, or even occupation. You think about the origin of many last names. The origin of many last names have something to do with a place or with a, a trade or occupation like Smith, or to ancestry like Johnson, son of John. But your name limits you to a certain place or trade or ancestry, who your, who your ancestors were. And that's how we think of ourselves. Even when you get to know someone on an even deeper level, people say, what's your name? You give them your first and last name. Tell me more about you. What do you start talking about? Oh, you talk about your family, or you talk about what you do, or you talk about where you're from. Where are you from? We ask people because we want to know more about them. But all these things mean that we're tied to specific areas of geography, specific people, and ancestry, most of which are completely out of our control. You didn't choose who your parents would be. You didn't choose the color of your eyes or hair or your, or your build. You didn't choose all this. All this is just chosen for you. All this is part of you, who you are, and it limits you but not so with God. When he says, I am who I am, he's saying there is no outside factor that limits who I am, that defines who I am. I am without boundary, without limit. There is nothing else besides, God is saying, the power of my own determination that makes me who I am. I am who I am. He is who He is. That is Yahweh, God. And we don't know anything else like that. Nothing else in all the universe is like that. Everything else that you know of is tied to something else to make it who it is. It has boundaries. It's connected with something else. Not so with Yahweh God. Nothing outside God defines who God is. He is the self-sustaining, self-existent, boundless, limitless, eternal God. 
And so when Moses is, when God is telling Moses, here is who I am. You have to this point been defined by your slavery and by your bondage and by the crack of the whip and by the load of the bricks. And now I'm introducing myself as the one who's defined by nothing except for my own determination. I am who I am. And so Moses comes to the people and he says, he is. He is has sent me. That is how God introduces himself. This is not only in contrast to the way that we tend to think of ourselves, but also to anything else that we tend to worship. Think about the things that we tend to idolize, the things that mean so much to us. Think about your health or your body or your self-image or your reputation or your wealth or your family. All these things have limits. Bodies shrivel and die. Reputations can go up in flames with a scandal or a rumor. Wealth can be demolished at a tweak of the economy. Your prestige, your family, all that can go in a flash. Why? It's not self-existent. Nothing else you can worship except for Yahweh can, can be the I am who I am. Self-sustaining, boundless, limitless. And you see what happens when we attach our significance to anything else that has, has, li- has limits, has boundaries. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. There's nothing else in the universe like that, like God. That's what makes Him absolutely unique. That's what makes Him holy. That's why when Moses approaches this bush that becomes a symbol for the presence of God, out of which God speaks to Moses, God says, stop, don't take one single step further, and take your sandals off as a sign of respect, because the ground on which you walk is the ground on which or at which the Holy One, the One who is, He is because He is, the utterly unique One is speaking to you. That's holiness. You don't know anything else in the universe like that. God's holiness is what makes him in a completely different category because he has no origins. He is instead the originator. He has no source. He is the source of everything else. That makes him absolutely holy. That makes him worthy of all our devotion and all of our attention. You don't know anything else in the universe like this God, although you know in your heart that there must be something like this God. Otherwise, how could everything else get here? You know in your heart that there must be something like this God, otherwise what will you worship that doesn't go away? This is Yahweh, the self-sustaining one. Now, that is His name. And remember I said that He identifies Himself by, first of all, His, his name, but also by what? By His relationship. You, you'd think that someone who has no boundaries, no limits, no origin, is uh, completely self-determining, you'd think that such a being would be utterly aloof and distant and because he's completely unlike us, but not so with God. Astonishingly, the one who says, I am who I am, is also the one 
who relates to individuals. Not just humanity in general, but people with names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These guys didn't really deserve the presence of God. These guys didn't deserve to have God's focus and attention upon them. They were just normal dudes. But this is what God does. God says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, the one who is self-existent, self-sustaining, boundless, and eternal. He limits himself to people. The thing that is so significant about this for us and for the people of God at this time is that God is not merely I am, but He is I am with. You see, when Moses calls to the people of Israel and says, He is, has sent me, it is not merely He is, but He is with. Like, th this distinguishes God from any other deity. No one else is like Him because no one else is self-existent. But also, this one deity, this, this God, this holy, utterly unique in His own category God says, I choose to be with you. Mind-blowing. But you see how Moses responds to this. It's like at first Moses doesn't get it. What is Moses' reply to God when God says that He's going to send him to lead the people out of, out of Egypt? Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. But Moses said to God, what? Who am I? What is Moses doing? He's concerned about his own identity. He's obsessed with who he is. And God is saying, Moses... It is not who am I, it's not who you are, it's who I am. It is not the one who has been to this point defined by his royal upbringing in the courts of Pharaoh. It's not the one who to this point has been defined by his rage. He killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand and had to run away into the wilderness. And he tried to reconcile two fighting Hebrews and they said, who are you? Who made you a leader over us? To this point, Moses' identity has been defined by other things. And when God finally confronts him, he says, who am I? And God says, well, I am I. And Moses still doesn't get it. Later on in verse, chapter 4, in verse 10, look at this. God, God is telling him and commissioning him. And, and Moses says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. What is Moses doing? He's saying, I'm still defined by my weaknesses. I stutter. I can't speak well. I don't do a good job. And, and this is what defines me. And God is saying, it's not who you are. It's who I am. I am who I am. You know, anytime we try to derive our identity from anything else but God, we will be disappointed, frustrated, ashamed. I heard a story recently about a young man who was uh, in college and he wanted to play football. He was on the football team. But he had some medical problems and, and his doctor was working with him and finally his doctor met with him one day and said, you know, you really need to quit football. And this young man recalling this incident later on, said, if I quit football, I won't get to wear the uniform and the jacket that gets me all the attention of the cafeteria and makes me interesting to other people. And he said, and, and these words just stuck out to me, he said, if I'm not a football player, then who am I? Let me ask you a question. What is it in your life that you would say, if I'm not this, then who am I?
What, what is it in your life that you, that is so, about your identity that is so absolutely important to you that if it were taken away, you wouldn't even know who you are? Now, sure, we go through things that are perplexing to us, that baffle us, suffering when someone dear is taken away from us or something precious is, is dissolves right before our eyes. We have these moments of confusion. But what, what is it in your life that if it's taken away from you, you say, I don't even know who I am anymore? This is why it's so important to listen to the words of Yahweh who says to you, I am who I am. And that is enough. That you're not trying to derive your identity from something other, something that can dissolve, something that can go away, something as, as shallow as whatever it might be, or precious as whatever it might be, but, but you are looking to the one who is self-existent, self-sustaining, boundless, the eternal creator God, Yahweh, I am who I am. No wonder Pharaoh received such a harsh punishment when Moses approached him and said, Yahweh, the one who is who He is, has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who's that? I know Isis, Ra, Osiris, whatever, all these other deities of the ancient world, but who is this Yahweh? With an arrogant dismissal of the God who is self-existent, Pharaoh would soon know who He was. after a frog infestation, after, after fleas and after flies and after the, the death of the firstborn in every uh, family in Egypt and after his last soldier drowned beneath the Red Sea, Pharaoh would know who Yahweh was. And that's why after the people of Israel miraculously crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, they sang this song. And it, and it goes like this, "'Who is like you, O Yahweh, O the one who is among the gods?' Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like this one? There's nobody among the gods, among anything else you might derive your identity from. There's no one like him. That's what holiness means. Utterly unique. No one like him. Yahweh. He is who he is. And so he proved himself to be triumphant over every so-called deity and He will prove Himself to be triumphant over everything else you worship besides Him. And that is the solution to the people's problem. His presence was with them. <laughs> their problem was their captivity in, in Egypt, and, and the solution was this self-existent God who is Yahweh, who also remembers and knows and cares for and understands them, taking them out of Egypt. That's the solution. So problem, solution. But you're like, didn't you say there was also problem, solution? Yes, problem, solution, but there's another problem, an even bigger problem. In fact, the most serious problem of all. And ironically, the next problem is actually part of the previous solution, because although it was the presence of God that brought the people out of slavery, although it was the presence of God that was the solution to their problem, although it was the presence of God that delivered them from the cruel hand of Pharaoh, yet it was the very presence of God that would actually consume them because of their sin. 
We read of this later on in, in Exodus when th- there begins this, this series of grumbling and complaining. The, the people that God had miraculously led out of Egypt begin to say, is God with us or not? They started getting thirsty and after they had seen all these wonders in Egypt, didn't believe that God could provide for them. They started to get hungry and wondered whether God would really do good by them. And finally, when Moses, at the same mountain that he saw and he heard the voice of God speaking from the burning bush, at the same mountain, ascends the mountain to receive the law from Yahweh. Meanwhile, the people of, of God had built this calf out of gold ornaments. And they begin to worship this calf and say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now, what must a holy God do in response to that? Just what God said He would do. This is from Exodus chapter 32, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. You see, the event, this event revealed that the biggest problem that the people had was not their problem of being enslaved in Egypt. Their biggest problem was that they were sinful in the presence of a holy God. Like a flammable desert shrub that would be consumed in fire. That was their problem. And finally, we see the mystery of the burning bush. Recall that Moses, the thing that made him curious, the thing that made him turn aside was not just that there was a bush, that's not unusual, it was not that it was on a fire and burning up, that would have been normal. It was this mystery that it was in flames but not consumed. And the question is, how can any human being exist in the presence of a holy God without being consumed? The fire, the presence of God, the desert shrub, the people of God, the mystery, how can God's people exist in His presence and survive? You see, throughout Scripture, God's presence is symbolized by fire. Wasn't it a flaming sword that, that kept Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? When God made a covenant with Abraham, we talked about this several weeks ago, He appeared passing through the slaughtered animals as a flaming torch. It was a pillar of fire that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. It was a fire that consumed Nadab and Abihu, the the nephews of Moses, for offering strange fire before God. If you read the book of Ezekiel, the prophet, fire surrounds his vision. He sees his vision of God and all around, dancing around and wrapping around this vision of God is fire. And finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, we read this, for Yahweh Yahweh, your God, is a consuming fire. And that verse is quoted again in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, for our God is a consuming fire. But you notice that the problem, that is how the people can survive in the presence of God, it wasn't revealed until what they thought was their biggest problem was solved. I mean, they thought their biggest problem was Egypt. Egypt. And they discover their biggest problem was themselves. Now, isn't it true that if, if you were, could just wave a magic wand and make all your problems disappear? 
Build your own universe. Reshape your own past. Undo the things you've done in the past and others have done to you. Make it perfect. Build this dominion for yourself. Stuff it with all kinds of distractions and entertainment. Spice it up with affairs and whatever things sound tantalizing to you. Do everything that you can to make this ideal life. And you sit upon the throne of your self-made universe and you will still feel the ground crumble beneath you because still the question remains, how can you thrive in the presence of God? Problem. Solution, the presence of God. Problem, our sin in the presence of God. So what's the solution? Ironically, the solution is, again, the presence of God. Because the thing that the burning bush points toward, and in fact the thing that all this first two-thirds of your Bible, the Old Testament, points toward, is a need for God being with us without consuming us. Jesus of Nazareth, when he was born, it was said that this fulfills what was said by the prophet, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus himself said to a crowd of Jews, before Abraham was, I am. Here is God in the flesh. As John says in his first, the first chapter of his gospel, and the Word dwelt among us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Jesus Christ, we have the presence of God coming right among us, but not to consume us, but to be consumed for us. You see what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The perfect, sinless Son of God, who did nothing to deserve the wrath of God, is being consumed for us, absorbing in Himself all the fiery vengeance of the just wrath of God that should have fallen upon us as sinners, and He's taking it Himself. This is what Paul is saying in his second epistle to the Corinthians in which he said, He made Him, that is Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the mystery of the burning bush is solved at the cross of Christ. We turn aside to see this mystery. Why is the bush burning but not consumed? How can people, how can I, this is the question that we need to make it personal for us, how, how can I dwell in the presence of God and not be consumed? And the answer is in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Son of God made sin for us. And if we want to see what God is doing and what God has done, look at what Jesus has done. God displaying His holiness, His wrath against sin, and yet it doesn't fall upon sinners who believe in Jesus. It fell upon His Son. And that is our greatest need. Remember I said that the the symbol of the burning bush is a symbol of your greatest need. It's not the thing that you probably are thinking of this morning or the problem that you came in with this morning because perhaps the problem that you came in this morning didn't have anything to do with the presence of God, but the presence of God is the greatest reality in your life. 
And so the, the greatest problem for you that needs to be solved, if it's, if it's never been solved before, if you've never believed in Jesus as your Savior, is to recognize that He did die for you. My friend, there's only one thing to do in response to that. And that is to believe in Jesus Christ to be your Savior from your sin. And my friend, if you have done that, and you are saying, I believed in Jesus and praise the Lord, He has taken my sin for me. He, he has suffered for me. You can find great joy in that. And that should be the motivating factor, the engine that drives your joy and your work for the Lord. It could be that, that you tend to be like Moses and God is wanting you to do something for Him and you keep on looking at yourself instead and you're saying, who am I? Who am I? And God is saying to you, I am I. What are you getting your identity in? What is it in your life if you were to say, if that were taken away from me, I don't know who I'd be. You better transfer that to, 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 the, to the Yahweh God the one without limits, the one without boundaries, the Holy One before whom you must worship every day of your life. That's the mystery of the burning bush. And that, my friends, is also a story of grace overcoming guilt.